the kings of the Philistines, the lords, the warlords of the Philistines are going to go out and fight against King Saul. And God has already spoken through the ghost or whatever of Samuel that Saul's going to be struck down the entire army. Well, at the same time that's happening with the witch at Endor, Saul, uh, David is part of Achish's military unit with his 600 mighty men. And they're, being pre- they're prepared to go out with the Philistines to go to war with Israel. And during this time, we know that he has deceived Achish into thinking that he's raiding Israel in the south while he lives in Ziglag, but he's actually raiding the enemies of God, not the people of God. And that's our background as we pick it up in verse 6. So, as David and his men were paraded before the warlords of the Philistines, the other Philistines say to Achish, like, what? what? Dude, this is the guy that they sang about killing his thousands, his ten thousands. How can this guy go to war with us? So, it, you know, that's not a good idea. So, Achish turns around in verse 6, and he calls David, and he said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you've been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may displease, that you may not displease the, the lords of the Philistines. So David says to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And then Achish answered and said to David, I know you're as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise in the morning with your master's servants who, are, who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. You need to go. So David and his men rose early and departed in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So the Philistines are in Israel, and they're about to go to war with Israel. They're occupying Israel. They're an occupying military force in Israel. So David, when he's sent back by the Philistines, he's actually sent back to the land of the Philistines down in the lowlands, like modern Gaza and that area. So this is the first part of the text tonight that gets our attention. This door's closed. He's been trying for years to figure out how to get by. It's, I was talking with Sam today about this. David could have won the Academy Award, the Grammy Award, and an Emmy Award, and all the awards. He's a great actor. When he fiend madness, Achish believed him. He said, this guy is a madman. He's out of his mind. Like, that's a really good acting job. Like, seriously. We know he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time and singers. He played the guitar with skill. So he had the musical skills. And we know he danced before the Lord. This guy had the whole package, Dancing with the Stars. He got it. He's used every skill set he has to find a way to keep going forward in difficult times. He's anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the great king of Israel in front of his brothers when he's a teenager. I mean, when he was class valedictorian in a big way when he moved on as a teenager, he had the anointing oil of Samuel the prophet upon his head. And he was a can do no wrong guy, and yet all these things have happened to him. He had the wedding day where he married Saul's daughter, and then Saul gave her to another man, and it's just been a, 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 rough, a rough go. You know, when he's a teenager, life did him pretty well with the Lord. He defeated the bear and the lion and even Phil, the Philistine, Goliath, but in his 20s, man, it got tough. You know, one of the lessons men learn in their 20s, and they, they need to learn if they don't, is nobody gets paid for being cool. Guys want to get paid for being cool. Guys are cool when they're 20. 
But if you're a real man, you'll figure out no one's paying you to be cool by the time you're 30. You got to be a man. And life will beat you up. And the best thing you do is not let mommy pamper you. But man up and be a man. And that's what's going on for David right here. He's figured out, they don't care if you got the anointing oil on you. Life is hard. Life is trials, testings, tribulations, and even tragedy. And you got to man up. And life doesn't stop just because your father-in-law, the boss, has fired you when you're the future king. Life doesn't stop because the Philistine warlord, it's like, it's like he's going to be the CEO of Hyundai America or something, and he's running Joe's auto shop over here, average Joe auto shop, and he still gets fired. Because now he's been fired by the Philistines. Men find their identity in their position in the world and the job they have and their ability to provide security for their wives when they're married. This man's wife was taken from him by his father-in-law. His job as a military leader for Israel was taken from him by his father-in-law. He's been falsely accused. He's faced all these things. He's going to go work for the other people on the other side of the tracks. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're pretty good. You can be one of my chief guardians. I'll give you a lifetime contract. We studied that last week. With benefits, I'll throw in dental. And even now on this text, on this day, They've worked so hard to take these men who are in debt, in distress, and discontent, shape them up like boot camp for Navy SEALs down there with the Buds and Coronado, and, and get these guys in line and get them going and get them ready. Now they're parading them before the Philistine warlords, and it goes exactly opposite what he's hoping. He gets sent home. But yet, even when he's sent home, he's like, hey, I know before the Lord, he even quotes the Lord as his, his secular Philistine God-worshiping boss, that you're an angel, like an angel to me. Well, actually, no, because David's been deceiving you for years. He's a really good actor, like a really good actor. It's over. This is the end of David's life on the run. This is where it all stops. No more drooling on the beard. No more living this lie, raiding these people and presenting it this way to Achish. God has intervened, and God has closed the door. And that's what we really see in this story. Because this is not his battle. But when you're desperate, you know what's going on. You may find yourself fighting against the wrong people because you're just doing the best you can. He's been stumbled by those over him. And he's just, I defend David. You've noticed that by now in Samuel. He's just, because I've, I've been David. You've been David. We, sometimes he's like, you're boxed in. You're just doing the best you can to figure out what's the best thing. And you're trying to maintain your integrity and your faith as a woman, as a man. You're just doing the best you can. Like, I don't also say, I'm just doing the best I can right now. I didn't ask for it to be this way, but this is the way it is. And I'm just, I'm just doing the best I, best I can to just find a way and get through this. And that's what's going on for David. And now that's over. He's lost his identity. He's not the Philistine world. He's, he's not going out with the Philistines. This military unit that's been successful in what they've done, this is not their day. God has closed this door. And we can even say in our modern terminology, this isn't your lane. Stay in your lane. Your lane is not attacking Israel, your own people. Your lane is attacking Amalekites and finishing up the dirty business that Saul himself, your father-in-law, wasn't willing to do and didn't do. That's your lane. You need to know what your battles are and what they aren't. And so God intervenes and he closes the door for him. And this is important. God closes doors. There in the book of Revelation, Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, 
I have the keys, and I open doors, and I close doors. I open doors no man can close, and I close doors no man can open. And it's worth noting when David is rejected by the Philistine warlords from going out to go to war against Israel. And by the way, can you imagine if David is in combat, and suddenly they draw the battle line, and here comes his best friend Jonathan with the left flank of the Benjamites? He'd be looking at his best friend like, I can't, even, I can't even imagine. These are the two mightiest men of faith. They would have faced each other in the battlefield. God protected David from making a big mistake, and God closed the door. David's doing the best he can. God closed that door, which just reminds us in the big scheme is things with the Lord is always forward with the Lord, because everything's always forward with the Lord, that he closes doors. So when you find disfavor in that relationship, when you apply for that college and you got the big no, and you went for this, you applied for this job, you're the best qualified woman, and someone else got it, and it was nepotism or whatever, that's okay. If we don't think God's bigger than a family member giving a job to another family member when you're more qualified, how are we going to trust him to raise us from the grave on the day of Christ Jesus? you got to believe that God's bigger than that. You have to believe. I mean, we're trusting Jesus to raise us from the grave. So coming from that basis, we have to know, like, God's bigger than the principal, the boss, the in-laws, the relatives, and this, that, and everything else. God's bigger. Big God, little problem. Little God, big problem. God's bigger than that. You frame it and you, you keep that in mind. This door was closed by the Lord. And his no is generally louder than yes. As you get older, and for those younger people, I'll tell you, God's no is usually loud. As loud as your parents saying, no way, you can't use the car. Or no, that's not going to happen. We're not paying for that. God's no is loud. Generally. His yes is much softer. The yes is more like listening to sonar when you're in a sub for hearing the blip. The yes requires the discipline of seeking the Lord and discerning the mind of the Lord and his will and his purposes for your life. Yes is, is more, at least in my own life, I find this to be true. Yes is softer. No is louder. So praise the Lord for no, right? Like when you're a little kid and you're about to touch the hot stove, your parents go like, no, it's louder. David's about to go out to war against Saul and Benjamin. God's like, no, but he didn't say it like that. He just put the, the warlords like, what a, there's no way. There's no way this guy's going out with us. So praise the Lord for closed doors. And the sooner that we can accept closed doors, the better it is for us. And we don't blame these people for closing the door. And we don't blame those people for closing the door. We simply say, that's the Lord. And he closed the door. And the sooner you can come to terms with that, the better. Now, you get on your horse and you take a long ride back to Ziglag and you're thinking about it. But I'm going to draw attention to the difference between David in chapter 29 and chapter 30 in just a moment. He's like, what have I done? What's going on? Like, when you're frustrated, that's how you get. Like, what have I done? I've worked so hard for you. I've worked hard for Del Taco. I show up on time. I clean the fry bin. And you're letting me go. Like, it's not about Del Taco. It's about the Lord moving us along and closing that door and getting us where he wants us to be and protecting us from something that seems like the next thing in our life, but God's bigger than that, and he's protecting us. Receive the closed door and move on to the next thing, which brings us to chapter 30. In chapter 30, David and his men return to Ziglag, and they find after three days, so he's had three days to think about getting fired by the Philistine warlords, not getting the promotion, not getting the job. And so now he comes back to Ziglag, and lo and behold, everybody's gone. Their village is burned and plundered by who else but the Amalekites. 
The Amalekites, the perpetual enemies of Israel, have plundered David's household, his goods, everything, everybody. His 600 men, all their wives, all their children, all their goods, everything was taken. The Amalekite raiders came when David's over here, and when David comes back, the city is burned. So their house is destroyed. Now imagine if someone destroyed your house. Someone destroyed your house. If, you, if a man's identity is in his job, a woman's identity is in her home. Can you imagine your husband's gone and these Amalekite raiders show up? That's terrifying enough. They take you and your kids and all your wealth and then they burn your house in front of you before they leave town. That is just, well, it's actually human history, believe it or not, which most of you know it is, but that's just gripping and that's a gut check of all time. So that's what they did. So in that background, this is the lowest moment for David. It's just like they come back, the whole neighborhood, Pacific Sands, where I live in Huntington Beach, is burned to the ground. It's all gone. That beautiful planned community in the Fort Worth suburb, gone. Just gone. Vero Beach, McCann's neighborhood, just gone. Gone, and the people we love are gone. You see the context now? This is heavy stuff. So in that background, the 600 men who are parading themselves four days before as superheroes, now they're like, it's all the boss's fault. It is all the boss's fault. David, we have followed you from the cave at Adullam, and we've done everything you said to do, and look where it got us. We've lost everything, our family and our fortune, our future. We've lost it all. And in that background... David does what we all need to do in the difficult day. We're told in verse 6, in the midst of this, now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. They're going to kill him. Because of the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then David said to Abathar the priest, remember he's the one that escaped the slaughter of the 70 priests, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abathar brought the ephod of David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord, answered him, saying, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. So David had to accept that closed door and just, you know what? That's that. But now he has to be in the moment, and he has to be in the most difficult moment imaginable. And he has to gather his thoughts and his wits. You know, just because you have a trial and a crisis going on in your life doesn't mean you have to stop living. That you can stop living. You ever notice, like, Caesar doesn't care if you've got personal problems because of a terminal illness. Caesar wants you to pay your taxes. There's lots of people that have terminal illnesses in America. Caesar wants his money. Caesar wants you to pay taxes. The boss might be empathetic. Boss, you might have a good boss, and they'll give you weeks off because you're dealing with a terminal illness. Some bosses, they'll give you three days and say, suck it up. And that's in America. You, you just don't know. Life goes on. I've told this story about one of the top surfers I coached with the U.S. team back in uh, 2008, where his mom had this big scene. I was, that was the day Pete Carroll was with the team, and we were down there. And his mom threw the biggest scene, and then he was all upset, and she said, I'm humiliating her son at this practice and all these things. 
And what happened was he had lost a, a final, like a final of the top American surfers, but I had like a consolation final. Kind of like World Cup soccer, you know, you have the, the consolation final, or more importantly, like the Olympics, where you lose the archery semifinal, and then you're in the archery consolation for bronze medal. You know, those are the best matches to watch in the Olympics, by the way, is the battle for bronze, because you tell whose head is still in the game and wants to go home with the medal, and who's over it because they can't have gold. You know, some people quit because they can't have gold. But some people dig deep, and they'll still go home with a medal with bronze. And believe me, I've gone home with gold, and I've gone home with copper, bronze, and silver. I've won all four colors in international competitions with Team USA, and I've gone home with nothing with Team Chile. I've gone home as the last place coach of the worst team in the world with Team Chile in 2015 Ecuador. And 11th place result with Great Britain in 2011 in Peru. So I know what it's like to get on the plane without a medal. I know what it's like to get on the plane with a gold medal. And believe me, gold feels better than no medal, right? Winning feels better than losing, but you learn more from losing. And this mom just was, you've humiliated my son because why would he even try if he can't win the gold? I'm like, well, because just because you can't win gold doesn't mean you don't try. And I had to talk with this athlete later on in the day, and I said, listen, there's going to be a day maybe when your wife is dying of a terminal illness, and you got to get up and go to work. He goes, I only go for the goal, and I go, well, you know what? That might sound good when you're 17 and a high school senior, but let me tell you, in life, you don't always get to go for the gold. There's a lot of people that get up and go to work all over the world, and they're going for food, not for gold. And if you think the life's going to kowtow to you where it's only about gold, you've got a, a, a tough lesson coming. I'm a surf coach, but I'm really a mentor, a life mentor. And I'm trying to prepare you for a time in your life when you're, it's not all about you and you're not all, all it. And someone you love is dying and you still got to go to work and pay your mortgage. And you got to put food in that refrigerator and you got to live life. That's what that heat was about today. You don't always get to go for the gold, son. That's the way life works. And I'm preparing you for that. Are we good? Yeah, we are. We're good. You don't dig deep just because you can be the winner. You dig deep because life goes on every day. And it doesn't stop for you just because you're having a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, and a bad decade. Jesus didn't die on the cross, so you can only go for gold. We come from victory, and we're going to victory, but it doesn't mean we always get to win. And that's just the way it is in life. So here for David, in this low point in his life, where really, this, this is the low point right here. When it says that he strengthened himself in the Lord, this is the low point. This is the absolute rock bottom of this entire book in David's life. And now it all just stops, and he has to slow it down, and he has to gather his thoughts and gather his wits and figure out, as I say, TNT, the next thing. What's the next thing? In crisis management, and those of you who deal with police and law enforcement and military, it's, it's, it's observing the whole situation. They call it the ODA. You observe, and you, you have to calculate what's going on, and you have to make a decision of what the next thing is. There is a next thing. It might be calling the police if you're not the police and there's a crisis. It might be filming the person who's a threat so you have their visual. It might be writing down the license plate. You know, there, there is a next thing, and in a crisis situation, you want to melt down. And in a personal life crisis situation, you, just because you don't feel like paying the bills doesn't mean they're not due. The bills are due. And someone's going to expect you to pay those bills. And not to pay those bills is taken from the people who worked hard to provide those services for you, and now you're taking from them. Pay your bills, and preferably on time. 
or at least communicate what's going on while you can't be them on time. Life doesn't stop because you're having a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, or a bad decade, or even a tough life. And for David, it's just, how did we get here? At this moment, he's like Job in Job chapters 1 and 2. He has lost everything. He didn't have his wife to, curse, to tell him to curse God like Job did. He's got 600 men that he's invested his life in who want to kill him. Not just go on strike, but to kill him. And then you see what he says. It's interesting in the Hebrew. Then David said to Abathar the priest, please bring the ephod to me. You know, when you're broken like this, there's not a lot of words, is there? It's like when you're a broken woman and you're a broken man, just tell me what's happening. Bring the ephod. Now, the ephod is the robe. It's kind of like the flashpoint of faith. And, you know, think about the ephod. We bring out the ephod to David. What's it remind of him? It reminds him of 70 priests being killed that were innocent because he ate the showbread with his buddies. The robe's not like a happy feeling. You know, look, when you bring out Goliath's sword to David, happy feeling. Happy feeling. Yeah, yeah, CIF, MVP, you know. Ah, that's us. St. Bosco's, right? Happy feeling. The robe, happy feeling's gone. The robe is like 70 people got slaughtered. This robe is associated. This guy who brings out the robe is the only living person from that day when Saul and Dog the Edomite wiped out everybody, falsely accusing them. It's not on you. You didn't execute them. But it is a chain reaction of you doing the best you could on that day. So it's not like you get to look at something and draw strength from like, oh man, we can do this because, you know, we did this. We, we were class valedictorian. We were this. We were that. We got the Eagle Scout thing. We got it all. Like, there's nothing to Like, the robe is a reminder of really a sad memory. But it is the flashpoint of faith for the Lord. It's such a short and simple sentence. Please bring the ephod to me. It's the next thing. We have got to seek the Lord. We have strengthened ourselves in the Lord. I've had to slow it down. I've had to press in. I've had to meditate on his law. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. I'm meditating on the Ten Commandments. I'm meditating on just the goodness of the Lord. I've got new psalms to write right now. They're coming to me. I can hear these guys yelling at me right now. My wives and children are gone. I've lost my job and my identity. I've lost my home. Where can we possibly go from here? Lord, what is next? The next thing is bring the ephod. And ask me before the men, what's next? So the ephod comes out. What's next? And the Lord says, okay. David says, he inquires of the Lord, what is the next thing? And the Lord says, the next thing is go get him and you won't lose anything. That's it. You know, you like it when the Lord speaks a good word to you, like when you when he puts something on your heart, it gives you a word from the, the scriptures, it's in a K wave or a song, and you just know it's the Lord confirming to you. That's a good thing. At the lowest point of his life, well, of course, God said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's reaffirmed the New Testament book of Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said on the mount before he ascended, Lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. There's nothing that we face that we face alone without the Lord in the human experience when you belong to Christ. And even if you don't, he still faces it with you because he knows you're there and he knows what's going on. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go up here, you're there. If I go down to the depths, you're there. If I go to the east to the west, you're there. That's what David wrote in Psalm 139. You're there. 
So let's invite him to be here. Let's inquire of him. What's the next thing in this crisis moment? The next thing is go overtake him. The next thing is to gather your thoughts, gather your men. You are going to war. You are going to combat, but not against my people, but for my people. Now go. That's the next thing. This is your lane. This is your battle. Saddle up and attack. That's what it is. You can't, you know, so often we just want to call the extended timeout. We really do. And I've already said this, but we want an extended timeout. Like in the NBA basketball, they get like a little, you get the 20-minute timeout. You get the, the, the long, the full timeout, the TV timeout. Like sometimes like, can we just have like a two-hour timeout? Like a baseball rain delay maybe. Like, you know, where it rains for an hour and they roll out the tarp. Can we just have a longer timeout? Life keeps happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week, four weeks a month, 12 months a year. In the human experience, our timeouts are very short. We have to pull it together. We have to slow things down, pull it together, and we've got to get back at it. There are seasons where we need to be refreshed. We need to recover from things. I spoke with someone even this week who's just having a hard time working through things, and they've been hurt by some things that went on. And they, they literally said that they feel toxic. I'm like, okay, I understand that. I mean, I get it. I spoke to Hector Mora, a different conversation this week down there in Texas, who was pastoring the church in Long Beach two years ago before the mandates came down. They couldn't meet indoors. They couldn't meet outdoors. They couldn't meet. And he tried and he tried, and that, that was it. They were over. He, they left. They moved to Texas. And he said, and you know, his wife Carol's had health issues, and they've been down there almost two years, a year and three-fourths. He's got a great job, and they're very involved. He teaches children's ministry at the Calvary Chapel in Fort Worth. But he said to me, you know, Joey, we just, we gave so much to the ministry. We've needed a season just to really kind of regroup and refresh. Yeah, because they were part of the church plant with Tim Chaddock at Reality LA when it started. He drove the trailer every Sunday to Los Angeles for the first two years of Reality LA when that church was planted. Every Sunday, him and his wife, the trailer with all the supplies. And then they landed here and got trained for a year or two of ministry. Then we planted the church. And some of you, the Frisbees, you were committed to a whole year to help them. Many of you attended that church in Long Beach. And they gave their hearts. They gave bottled water at the skate parks. They gave stuff to the homeless people. They gave themselves fully to the people of Los Angeles County. And then they were told for a half a year, you can't meet anywhere. And it broke them. And like so many people, they left the state. Add them to the list of tens of thousands who did. And Hector said, you know, Joe, we just needed a season to refresh, so we get it. But then there comes a point, well, what's next, Hector? Because you're a lead pastor. I want to know what you're, what's next. A year and three-fourths? Okay, I want to know what's next. Can we redeem the 501c3 for Texas? I've been looking at that. Good, you should be looking into it, because you're the lead pastor. What's next? You see... You still have to function because he's bought a home. He's works a job, regular job, selling loans. He's living, but in the ministry calling, he's like, you know, I'm catching my breath. So, you know, we want to call a longer timeout than we get, but it just, you just don't get those long timeouts. But you do get seasons of refreshing, and talking with Hector is a good example, and talking to someone else saying, I really need a season, and I need this, and now I'm like, you may not be able to get it. I sent him a text late last night saying, listen, it's kind of like the message last week. 
This isn't a time to step down. This is a time to rise up. And don't let people dumb you down. You've already been devalued. You need to understand your value and get on with the plan and get after it. And I got the text this morning. Thanks. So David's just got to do it. I don't feel like going to war. I don't feel like getting back on these horses and riding again. Uh, can't you just release our, our, our family and our goods? And No, you've got to fight for it. Like Paul said, you've got to fight the good fight. And some things are worth fighting for, and some things are not your battle. We already saw that in the first point. You've got to go get it. Go get it. Go get your wives. Go get your kids. Go get your goods. They took it from you. Go get it. So they find the guy. They find the Egyptian that was abandoned by the Amalekites in the desert. Because they'll abandon you if you're sick. They'll throw you to the wayside. That's how Amalekites are. And they went and, went and did it. So in chapter 16 of the same chapter, excuse me, in chapter 30, verse 16, they, they pursue the Amalekites and eventually they caught him. And we read this in verse 16. And when he had brought the Egyptian down, uh, when the Egyptian had brought David to the place to show him where the Amalekites were, uh, they were spread out. The Amalekites were all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. It's a 24-hour battle. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels that fled. So David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoiled or anything which had been taken from them. David recovered it all. Then David took all the flocks and herds that they had, had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. So in the battle, they recoup, recover everything, recoup everything, and then God gives them a bonus. Not only recoup what was theirs, they get other goods that the, the that the Amalekites took from other people and they got a return investment on their investment that was taken from them. God is so good. You know, those, those guys, the Sabaeans and all those guys in the book of Job, they took everything from Job. And yet, what do we read in the end of the book of Job? God restored double fold what he lost. Now, it doesn't always go that way in time, but it certainly will in eternity. Whatever anyone takes from you in time, it could be doubled up or quadrupled up in time. But even if it's not, just know this. That's just more glory in eternity. That's more equity, long-term dividend returns with Christ Jesus for all eternity in eternity. The man or woman that can truly let those things go, it's just more glory in the next dimension. It'll test your faith in this one, but it is more glory in the next dimension because Jesus said so. Having lost homes and all these things for his namesake, he'll restore in this life and how much more in the life to come. That's what he said. So I'm just quoting the clear print on the contract as a disciple of Jesus Christ with the king. He says he'll restore it. It's never about the money. It's about the heart. And it's about compassion, love, and forgiveness. Like we said with Saul, even though we have Saul's spear in our hand, we can never use the the spear on Saul because then we become Saul. And Jesus didn't die on the cross. Jesus did not die on the cross so we can be Saul. Jesus died on the cross so we could be a woman with a heart after God and a man with a heart after God. Here's your spear, Saul. We can never be you. That's the gospel. That's the disciple of Jesus Christ. But David fought for what he needed to fight for, and God restored it and gave him some. Then, after that, the story picks up. So that's what he had to do in the moment. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He inquired of the Lord, and then he attacked. He did what the Lord said. He did the next thing. Like Monday morning, the most important thing, the week. The most important things, this, that, the details, the, the macro, the most important thing. The, the details, the macro, the next thing, the next thing. 
That's how you approach it. And he did what was called for him to do in that moment. The moment demanded his head in the game, head on a swivel, and to do what God clearly showed him to do, and to go with the promises of what God called him to do after he inquired, and get it done, do the job. And he did, and God blessed him for it. But after that happened, now we have this, verse 21. Now David came to the 200 men who had been weary that could not follow David. We, over, we went over this text, but of his 600 men, 200 were too tired to keep on the pursuit. So 200 stayed behind with the supplies, and 400 were involved in the battle against the Malachites. That's the context. And when they made stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David. This is verse 21. And the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. <laughs> David's like, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part who goes to the battle, so shall be his part who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward. Oh, there's our magic word, by the way, WG. Forward. Always forward. From that day forward, he made a statute, a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. New policies and procedures in the army of David. Verse 26. Now, when David came to Ziglag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, here's a present to you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And so he sent these things to Bethel, to Ramoth, Jatir, Aror, Sifmoth, Estimoah, Rachel, Jeremothites, the Canaanites, Orma, the Chorsh, to uh, Chorshan, those in Chorshan, Athak, Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to travel and move about. Here's the future. See, David, God closed the door. That's the past. It's forever the past. You're never going to be a part of the Philistine army again. You're, you're never going to be working for Achish. God has closed that door. This was the present. You did exactly what you're called to do. The next thing. And now in the sowing of the fruit and the rewards of doing the next thing, he's got everything restored to him. Everyone, the hugs, the kisses, the tears, all that, all the supplies. They go back to their, their hometown, what's left of it. They're burned out homes. They have all the wealth they need to rebuild. But he's got division with his men. The 400 men who fought combat said, these guys, they didn't do anything. They, they, they just, they're water boys. You know, they're water girls. They didn't do anything. They're juice box mom, you know, whatever. They didn't do anything. We fought the battle. We, we, we did all this. And David's like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, have we come this far? We're all in this together. When we go forward, we need to apply the lessons learned of our past. We don't live in the past, but we need to learn the lessons of the past and make good decisions for going forward. And we also need to sow to our future, with both, which both happen here. But the lesson of the past is don't leave your wives and kids unattended without military support. They left their families vulnerable. They left the women and the children without any support. They left people behind that were not able to defend themselves. And David, in his process of thinking, had already concluded that the 200 men who stayed with the supplies are the example of how you do it. Everything can't go 
You can't be all, you need to diversify your wealth. Like it can't all be in the same thing. David had made a tactical error in leaving, especially as a raider, leaving his hometown vulnerable without any military support to defend the wives, the children, and the defenseless and their assets. So now when they got the assets restored, he says, hey, there's a new policy in our company, in the company of David, future king of Israel. Those who stay home with the supplies, those who work in the warehouse are just as important as those people who sell the product out to the distributors. That's the policy. Those who go in the mission field need to be supported from those who stay behind. And those who send the money are equal in the eternal kingdom to those who actually preach the gospel, like WG. Our finances went to 50-plus countries last year around the world, open and closed. We stayed here. God blessed us. We sowed bountifully hundreds of thousands in the mission field. And when we get to eternity, we'll see it. Just think about this. Franklin Graham and his shoeboxes. Hello. We put the shoeboxes up here every Christmas. 100, 120. They go to all these different countries. We've been doing this for at least 15 years. You stuff those shoeboxes. You buy the stuff for those shoeboxes. People get saved through those shoeboxes. Do you understand in eternity how much fruit we've been racking up in 17 years in this building in Jesus' name around the world? Yeah, and those shoeboxes, like, we have a broad portfolio in eternal investments with missions. But I, I feel like the shoebox is like, you know, like, that's just, the, that's just the dividend gifts that just keep on giving and giving and giving. Who can even know? When you watch any of the videos from Samaritan's Purse, about people who work for Samaritan's Purse who got saved through a shoebox 20 years ago. And you just realize, like, these shoeboxes go where we could never go. And they bring the gospel to people that we could never go to their country and bring it to them. Isn't that amazing and beautiful and all the incredible stories? See, the one who stays, who stays with the supplies is just as important as the one who goes out and fights the battle. Now, that's the principle for missions, the church, and giving. That's a principle really for 1 Corinthians 12, where God gives everyone a gift, and we can't, one person with this gift can't say, I'm the nose, and I'm more important than the feet, and the hand's more important than this. That. Like, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that God supplies the gifts for the building up of the body to edify itself, and that every gift that he's given in the body of Christ, in other words, every person that's saved through faith in Jesus Christ, is important to the overall body of Christ. It's like being on a high school football team. You might just be special teams and a backup linebacker, but when you line up on kickoff coverage, that's really important. Or if you're like my son, Timmy, who is a backup running back and a backup linebacker at Calvary High, you know, when they run service offense and service defense all week at practice, and you're running the plays of of Mesa High, you're running the plays of Estancia, and you're running the plays of Laguna Beach, and Luke Thompson, those guys are lighting you up, you're preparing them to play those teams on Friday night. So even though during pregame warm-up and you got the uniform on, you're doing all this, and you might get in when it's a blowout in the fourth quarter, we understand that. But still, those close games that we won, you were running their plays in our practice to make our starters better for that game. We all belong any good quarterback worth their salt knows you buy rings for your offensive line. Always. Everybody matters. David taught these men a valuable lesson that everybody matters on this team. And from this team of 600 men would come the 30 mighty men of David 
who recorded for us in two different books of the Bible for their greatness. And their greatness isn't just that they were great warriors to fight giants in a den or take on a lion or anything else like that. Their greatness is they understood the value of people. They went from being in debt, in distress, and discontent to administering millions of dollars worth of wealth in Israel and controlling the land the size of Southern California. And David's son, of course, Solomon is the greatest of them all for managing wealth. So from the low tide moment to the incoming tide in David's life, this is where the tide turned. It's peak minus tide when they want to kill him, and now the tide's coming in. And we'll never, the future of David in 2 Samuel is so different than 1 Samuel. But there's one more portion of this story that gets our attention. See, people who live paycheck to paycheck, and a lot of us do, and I've done it, we've done it, we know what it's like. There's, there's a pattern we have. If you give us more money, we'll spend more money. That's, but people that are really smart, they learn to sow their money, save their money, and they look to the future. I saw a clip of Shaquille O'Neal. We all know Shaquille O'Neal. He's the beloved former center of the Lakers, Orlando Magic. Shaquille O'Neal's the best. I watched him do the NBA thing on TNT. He's hysterical with Charles Barkley. I watched a video of him where he takes a piece of paper. He goes, this is what most people do. They get a piece of paper and they consume it. He goes, smart people rip it in half and they set aside half of what they make. He goes, but the really smart people, he takes the other half, he splits that in half, he goes, that's what the really smart people do. See this right here? That's what you live on. This is what you buy your food with, this is what you buy your car with, that's what you live on. See, most people who win the lottery waste the lottery because they don't have an eye to the future. We need an eye to the future, the eternal future and even when you get older. David took increased wealth. Don't miss this. This is a bonus thought here. Because you talk about an eye to the future. He had a new policy and procedure to the future. It said concerning the policy with the 600 men, this is, this is the future. It's a new statute and ordinance. But more importantly, he took the bonus, the extra wealth they got. And what did he do? Did he build a bigger house? No. Did he buy a flashier car to impress his neighbors? Uriah the Hittite? No. What did he do? He gave it away to his future. He took the extra and he sowed it. And where did he sow it? With the elders of Judah. Who are the elders of Judah? The people who will make him king in the next book. David is way ahead. There's a saying in life. There's people that can see what's in front of them. People that see what's ahead. And some people see around the corner. But some people, they're lapping you. David is lapping people right here. He's putting out the brush fire with his employees. This is a new policy. And then he's taking all this extra wealth. They're like, hey, let's split up the booty like a bunch of pirates and pirates of the Caribbean. He's like, no. We're going to send this wealth to a dozen villages that have supported us while we've been running from Saul. When you become the king of Judah, where do you begin and how does it begin? One step at a time. Be that king. Carry yourself like a king. Like it says in Proverbs, hey, my son, don't drink long on the wine and go after the adulterous woman. Carry yourself like a king. Be the king. I mentioned to Hannah, we were just joking my daughter Hannah a few months ago. I go, hey, you know they say dress for success. She goes, no, dress for the job, not for the job you have, but the job that you want to have. Be the king. Start acting like a king. Start acting like a queen. Be that person. 
Don't you say, I won the lottery, ah, and spend it all on a bunch of stupid things. Whatever it is, spiritual or practical. David saw the future, and he came into extra economic wealth, and he immediately sowed it in the future. Invest in your future, WG. Support the body of Christ so bountifully in missions, so bountifully in whatever it is that makes you a better you, that makes you more skillful at what you're doing. Or as Luke Caldwell told me three years ago, hey, you have 24 hours a day. Get smarter, get better. Get your hustle on. You can YouTube anything. Invest in your future. With the extra time, invest in your future. Invest in you to to be a better you for the kingdom of God and what God wants to do with you. If you have a surplus, use it wisely for the kingdom, for your family, and the people you love. Don't be caught off guard on a dark day and have nothing for the dark day. The Bible tells us go to the ant and learn from them. They work hard and they have something for when there's nothing. David is sowing to the future right here. You could miss this, but this we don't miss. A great policy and procedure for his company. Hey, everybody's in this. We're all one team. We share in the profits. But the extra stuff, we're going to reinvest it. We're going to put it to work for our future. Because these elders of Judah, in the next book, they're going to come down and they're going to ask me to be the king. Not of Israel, but of Judah. And you got to start somewhere. In fact, Jesus told the story in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 16, he told the story of the shrewd servant who had been unfaithful, and the master said, hey, it's time to give an account. So what he did is he went and settled accounts with everybody. Oh, you owe my master 100? Let's settle for 75. You owe, you owe him 100? Let's 40 or 80? Let's settle for 40. He went out, and Jesus commended that person because he had foresight to be prepared for the future. And Jesus said the sons of the earth are more shrewd than those of the kingdom. In fact, the context, he says, you can learn something from people like that. Don't be lazy in the name of Jesus with your time, your energy, and your resources. Because we're coming from victory, going to victory, and ours is eternal. And everything we do should be eternal. And we don't want to dumb down the good things of the kingdom. And we need to see the future. David, let the past go. That door closed, it's closed, it's forever closed. You're not a chief, one of the chief guardians for a Philistine lord. David dealt with what he had to deal with in the moment. You got to deal with this. You got to take it on and get after it. And then when it was all said and done, he made sure everyone got what was rightfully theirs. He sowed bountifully in people, and then he sowed to the future, the future of his destiny with the King Jesus, our King, our Lord and Savior, who would say to him later, I'm building you an everlasting kingdom. Isn't that amazing? It's past, present, and future. Forgive what's behind, we press on what lies ahead. It's open call of God in Christ Jesus.